Well, this has been an incredible day, has it not? I, I feel like a tsunami of sound doctrine has just swept over my soul, and I can't think of another conference in which I have ever preached that there has been so much theology and doctrine that has been given to us. And this has really been an all-star lineup. Uh, Josh Weiss, thank you for the invitation that you've given to all of the men who are preaching in this conference. And um, it's really like an all-star game in some ways. And to hear each of these men preach uh, the Word of God, focusing in upon the doctrine of salvation has been refreshing to my heart and to my soul. And this has been a full day. And so you're still here. And uh, you're an example of the perseverance of the saints as you have come through the tribulation. So uh, um, I have the wonderful, wonderful assignment of preaching on justification. And there's probably not a person in this entire worship center who has not sat under preaching on the doctrine of justification. Uh, it is a doctrine with which I trust that we have great familiarity, but I can only pray that God will give us ears to hear afresh the truth of His Word. And so I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. And I want to begin by reading the text be verses 21 to 26, and I'm not certain if we're going to be able to get all the way through all these verses. Romans 3, I want to begin reading in verse 21. The Apostle Paul, as he is writing, as you well know, his magnum opus, his greatest writing. He wrote 13 epistles, but this one towers over them all. There are 21 epistles in the New Testament. This one is always listed first in every Bible in this worship center today. It was not the first epistle to be written. It was the seventh epistle to be written. Yet it always occupies the lead place in the order of the books in the New Testament. Because it rises like Mount Everest that towers over, I think, the rest of Scripture as the most important book in the Bible. And we come now to this section that many regard as the high point of the entire book of Romans. If you were to understand any portion of the book of Romans, you must understand this. So beginning in verse 21, Paul writes, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over all the sins previously committed. 
for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he, God the Father, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In these verses, we see what I have already said, what many regard as the most important passage, not just in the book of Romans, but in the entire Bible. No less than Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, the premier expositor of the 20th century, believed that these verses are the most important verses in the entire Bible, that they tower over even John 3.16. And that when Lloyd-Jones came to edit his now famous series on Romans, he did not begin his editing and publication with Romans 1 verse 1. He did not know how long he had to live. And he went straight to this very text, and he began his commentary series of Romans with Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, because that was of greatest importance to Lloyd-Jones. To understand this is to understand the gospel. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said much the same as he called this uh, paragraph that I just read, he called it, quote, the chief point and central place of the entire epistle of Romans, and then he added, and of the entire Bible, close quote, because this text focuses on what Luther believed was the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. Luther called this truth of justification from this text, quote, the article by which the church stands or falls. Without this truth, we have no church, close quote. Everything in the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, invincible, eternal, But some portions of Scripture are far more important than other portions of Scripture. And not nonetheless than Martin Lloyd-Jones and Martin Luther believe that this text rises like Mount Everest over the terrain of Scripture. Luther said, quote, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. You don't have to be a Christian to believe in the doctrine of election. You don't have to be a Christian in order to believe effectual calling. But you do have to be a, believe in justification by faith in order to be in the kingdom of God. It is that essential. This is not a matter of peripheral importance, but of primary importance. Luther went on to say, this is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. This doctrine of justification by faith is the head and the cornerstone. In other words, every other doctrine must be brought into alignment with this doctrine. Luther went on to say, justification alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves and defends the church of God. 
Without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Justification is the master. It is the prince. It is the Lord. It is the ruler, the judge over all other doctrines. Whoever departs from this doctrine of justification does not know God. Without this doctrine, the world is in utter death and darkness. So we cannot be wrong about justification by faith and be right with God. To be wrong about this doctrine is to be wrong with God. And so what is this doctrine of justification by faith? Why is it so essential? What this doctrine says is that though you and I are sinful beings who have fallen short of the glory of God, that if we will put our faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father will declare us to be righteous before Him on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It means to be given a favorable verdict in the courts of heaven. It is the very opposite of being condemned. To be justified by faith means there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification is related to the concept of God as judge of all the earth. How can God, who is perfectly holy, receive sinful creatures into His presence? The answer is justification by faith alone. The key word in this text, verses 21 to 26, is the word righteousness. It is found four times. It stands out in this, in this cluster of verses. You will find righteousness in verse 21, verse 22, verse 25, and verse 26. It is the same root word that is found in justified in verse 24, just in verse 26, and justifier in verse 26. That's a total of seven times in these few verses in the word Righteousness conveys the idea of conformity to a standard. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God, whereby you now meet the standard that God requires for admission into His kingdom, though it is not of our working, it is entirely of God's grace in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we are talking about here is matters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said, it's the very hinge on which all religion turns, this very doctrine. So, I want us to walk through this passage in the time that we have uh, this evening, and I want to give you several headings concerning the righteousness of God. Number one, it is apart from works. That's where Paul begins. In verse 21, Paul begins his positive presentation of the gospel 
by setting forth that the righteousness of God comes to us apart from works. He begins in verse 21, he says, but now. And that signals an abrupt change from everything that has preceded. Starting in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it continues all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. It is the quintessential presentation of the radical corruption and total depravity of the entire human race. And Paul has, has, has put the entire human race under sin and under the wrath of God this very moment. It is in the present tense, for the wrath of God is revealed presently, right now. It is resting upon this entire world. Everyone outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he says in verse 21, but now... There's almost a sigh of relief. It's as if there is a a ray of gospel light that now shines into the darkness of the human race condemned by the law of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. When he says apart from the law, he he means apart from keeping the law, apart from obeying the law, apart from doing the law, apart from striving to to comply with the law. He starts with a negative denial, and there's a certain jolting impact about beginning with a negative denial before he comes to the positive assertion. So he's saying this is this is how someone is is not made right before God. He says, apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And when he says the righteousness of God, he is talking about the righteousness that every one of us in this room desperately needs in order to be acquitted of our sins and to be presented faultless before the throne of God. This righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes from God. God is the source. God is the giver. God is the provider of this righteousness that every one of us in this room so desperately need. In other words, we cannot work it up from within. It is an out-of-this-world righteousness. It is a righteousness that Martin Luther referred to as a, as a foreign righteousness, as an alien righteousness, meaning it must come from another land. It is a righteousness that, that is derived from another world. It is a righteousness that, that only God can give. It is a righteousness that, that must come down from the throne of God above. This righteousness is God's saving righteousness. It is His justifying righteousness. It is His imputed righteousness. It is His saving activity to give to us what we desperately need, which is to give to us the righteousness that He requires. 
And the, me- the message of the gospel is, what God requires, God gives to us. No amount of law-keeping can cause God to impute His righteousness to sinners. No amount of worshiping God, Sabbath-keeping, honoring parents, preserving life, working hard, truth-telling, heart contentment can cause God to reward the sinner with perfect righteousness. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. It must come from God. And Martin Luther himself came to this very point where he finally realized after 15 years of almost killing himself, trying to meet the standards that are in the law, finally came to the realization that no matter how hard he tried to gain this acceptance with God, he could not do it. Listen to Luther's testimony. When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, torturing myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, other very rigorous works, I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my own works. I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. He would sleep outside in in the frost and in the cold to show God how earnest he was to try and how sincere he was to try to meet the standard of, of God's law. He said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But even Luther, who virtually killed himself trying, could not attain to the righteousness of God. The term righteous, righteousness, it comes from a a word that was a word of the marketplace. A woman would go into the marketplace and she would want to buy a measure of grain. And she would go to the, to the businessman and she would say, I want a measure of grain. He would pull out the scales. There would be two dishes on the scales and he would pour a measure uh, of, uh, of grain into one dish and he would put the rock on the other dish. And the rock was the standard. And he would pour grain onto the other dish until they were said to be perfectly even. And when they were perfectly even, they were righteous. And so the gospel says that we are weighed in the balances. And on one side in the dish is the perfect holiness of God. Flawless, sinless, transcendent, impeccable. And on the other dish is poured your life and my life. And we have all been weighed in the balances And there is no righteousness that we can provide to this side of the dish to bring us equal to God's standard of Himself, of His own holiness. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as verse 23 says. And the only way for these scales to be perfectly righteous on this dish is the flawless, peccable, infallible holiness of God. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And on this side, there has only been one who has ever lived a sinless and perfect life. There has only been one who has met all the standards of of God's moral law. There's only been one who has been fully obedient to God. And through His one act of obedience, He's made the many to be righteous. And Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, He has been put in on this side of the scales, and God's holiness is on the other side of the scales, and they are perfectly righteous. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God declares us to be righteous. But it'll never happen by our good works. It'll never happen by our morality. It will never happen by our religiosity. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, All of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. The best that we bring to the table, the best that we can offer God, that word is used of the woman's minstrel rags, is loathsome in the eyes of holy God. So Paul begins unfolding the doctrine of justification by faith. And is it not interesting that his whole presentation of the gospel begins with justification by faith? As he comes out of the doctrine of total depravity and radical corruption, he pivots even now and he makes a beeline to the doctrine of justification by faith. So number one, it, 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 it is apart from works. Number two, this righteousness of God that we so desperately need. Number two, it was attested long ago. It was attested long ago. He goes on to say in verse 21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And what Paul is wanting the church in Rome to be fully established in this fact that the doctrine of justification by faith is not a new doctrine. It's not, if you will, a novelty that has come onto the scene in the first century. That this doctrine is rooted and grounded in the law and the prophets. And when he says the law and the prophets, that is a a shorthand for the 39 books of the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. And what this is telling us is that there is only one way to be made right before God, whether you lived in Old Testament times or whether you live in New Testament times, there was not one way to be made right with God in the Old Testament and now a different way to be made right with God in the the New Testament, that there is a perfect continuity from the Old Testament 
to the New Testament in the doctrine of salvation that anytime, anywhere, anyone has ever been saved, it has been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in the Old Testament, they simply looked ahead to the first coming of Christ, and we now look back to the first coming of Christ. We're not saved by looking for the second coming of Christ. We are saved by looking back at the first coming of Christ. Anyone, anytime, anywhere who has ever been made right with God, it has been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This doctrine was attested in the Old Testament. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then Isaiah 53, verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, referring to the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And what is so interesting to me in the book of Romans is that as Paul makes his case for justification by faith alone, and he looks for people who have been justified, he doesn't look to the example of Matthew and his conversion. He doesn't look to Mark or to Luke or to John to his conversion. He doesn't even look to his own conversion, he looks to Abraham and he looks to David to make the case for how someone is made right before God. And by the very examples that he uses, he is showing us the perfect continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which speaks to the singularity of the gospel, it speaks to the exclusivity of the gospel that there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. So, it was attested long ago. This is not a, a new truth that has just more recently come onto the scene in New Testament times, it is God Himself who was the first gospel preacher. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, the proto-euangelion, the first mention of the gospel, it was God Himself in the, in the garden who took the pulpit and who preached to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent and declared this message of salvation. So, number one, it's apart from works. Number two, it was attested long ago. Number three, it is acquired by faith. And we've already alluded to this, but as we come to verse 22, he begins, even the righteousness of God. You see that? That repeats what he said in the previous verse, in verse 21 as to underscore the emphasis that he's making here. This is all about the righteousness of God. This is all about God's gift of righteousness being given to sinners who have no righteousness of their own. So he begins, even the righteousness of God 
He says, through faith in Jesus Christ. So this, this righteousness is credited to our account. This righteousness is imputed to us. This righteousness clothes us as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith means our trust in Christ and Christ alone. It means our reliance upon Christ and Christ alone. It means the commitment of my life to Jesus Christ. It involves repentance and turning away from sin. It involves saving faith and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, this righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Christ alone. This righteousness is that which we have already said, which comes down from above. And we need to understand this. Faith is no better than the object of faith. A drowning man who lays hold of something that will not float, he will drown. It is not really faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And then he says at the end of verse 22, for there is no distinction. And when he says there is no distinction, what he is saying is, there's no other way for you to have this righteousness. There is no, there's no other line for you to get in. There's no other way for you to have it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you lived in Old Testament times or New Testament times. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised, nor if you're a Greek or a barbarian, or if you're wise or foolish, if you're male or female, slave or master, young or old. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your past. It doesn't matter where you've come from. All that matters is faith in Jesus Christ. And then he follows that up in verse 23. Notice verse 23 begins with the word for, which introduces an explanation. An explanation of what? An explanation of what he just said. So, for there is no distinction, he now clarifies with this explanation, this is what I mean. And in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a human being on planet earth who does not need this righteousness and it may only be received by faith in Christ alone. When he says for all, that means every person of every race in every place have sinned. It's a verb tense, it's an aorist tense, translated as a past tense, meaning that, that your, your entire past, you, you've blown it. You, your, your whole life. I mean, I mean you, you came out of your mother's womb speaking lies. And then he shifts the verb tense and says, and falls short, that's in the present tense. And so what he is saying is, every person on planet earth, you have sinned your entire life up until this point, and you now continue to sin every moment of 
of, of every day, or certainly every day, you fall short of the glory of God. That's what's put on this side of the scales. The glory of God. You, you, you and I have been measured by the glory of God. We, we're, we're not measured by or against the, the average morality of the American citizen. We're, we're, we're not measured by our self-estimation. We're, we're not measured by what our mother thought of us. What's on this side of the scales is the glory of God. The intrinsic glory of God is the sum and the substance of all of the holiness of God and all of the, the perfect being of God and, and all of the, 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 the essence of God. We're measured against God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Moses wrote in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, you shall be holy as your heavenly Father, or as God is holy. And Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, just to remind us, that wasn't just Old Testament truth. That same standard remains on the scales. We are measured against the glory of God, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we will by faith look away from ourselves and look to Christ, and by faith embrace Christ and, and trust Christ with a living faith, then God will transfer the righteousness that Jesus Christ secured to us that will be put on this side of the scales, and the scales will be perfectly righteous, though we have never lived perfect one moment of our entire life. Though we be sinful, God now sees us as perfectly just, or perfectly holy and righteous before Him. Now Paul continues to build this out. And we come now to verse 24. And what I want you to see is that this, this, this righteousness that is acquired by faith, in verse 24, I want you to see that it is appropriated by grace. It is appropriated by grace. And he begins verse 24 with these two words, being justified. The first time in the book of Romans that the word justified is used in a positive way concerning our salvation. Uh, it was used earlier of God himself whose, whose words are justified, and it is used of those who try to be self-righteous and justify themselves. But this is the first time that justified is used in the book of Romans in a salvific way, in a positive way. And what I want you to know about this word is, you know, we could parse this, present tense, passive voice, it's a participle, nominative case. All we need to know at this point, it's in the passive voice. 
We don't justify ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to heaven. That someone else must act upon us. Someone else must bring the gavel down. Someone else must justify us. And of course we know who that one is. It is God the Father. And he says, being justified as a gift by His grace. As a gift means it's, it's not earned as wages. It's not merited like a salary. But it is freely bestowed as a gift to those who do nothing to earn it, who do nothing to merit it, who have done nothing to deserve it, God simply chooses to bestow it on all those who lay hold of Christ by faith. And then to doubly underscore this, he adds, by his grace, which is almost redundant. Meaning, as a gift, the word gift here means grace. And then by his grace, just to, 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 to pile up the idea of grace upon grace. Justification is entirely an act of God's grace. It is God and God alone who justifies. It is 100% God. It is 0% man. God is the judge, and He alone has the gavel, and He alone can bring it down and declare one to be righteous. Now, the Bible uses three different metaphors to communicate this divine act. In justification, there is what we call the double exchange. All of my sins laid upon Christ at the cross. All of His righteousness laid upon me, the great transfer, the worst about me given to Christ, the best about Christ given to me and you when we believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the great exchange. Now, there's three different metaphors the Bible uses. One is legal, one is financial, and one is clothing. With the legal imagery, we stand in the courtroom of heaven, the supreme court of heaven and earth. We stand before the judgment bar. God is behind the judgment bar. The books are opened. And every sin that you and I have ever committed in the history of our life, past, present, future, is all recorded in this book. God has been keeping impeccable records. Sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of doing what we should not have done, sins of failing to do what we should have done, sins of mind, sins of heart, sins of mouth, sins of hands, sins of every part of our body. It's all in the books. And the charge is brought against us. We stand condemned. 
And the curse of the law is death. Eternal death. The second death. And standing next to us is our advocate, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of my faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father takes His righteousness and declares it to be mine. Though I have never lived one moment perfectly righteous, nevertheless, I am forensically, legally declared in the court of heaven that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you and I have mountains and mountains and mountains of sin. The books of life would be multiple volume for each and every one of us. And God declares us to be as righteous as though we have never committed one of those sins. That's the legal metaphor. Then there is the financial metaphor or the banking metaphor that is used in chapter 4 with David. We stand before God who opens the books. And he sees that we have all sinned, and that the wages of sin is death. He sees into our account that we have no spiritual capital whatsoever, that we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to pay off our debt to God, and we are spiraling down further and further and further into debt every moment of every day with an insurmountable obligation and debt to God under the law that we could never pay off in a thousand million trillion eternities. And standing next to us is the Lord Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of righteousness. And we believe in Jesus Christ. And in a moment, God transfers all of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He transfers it to our account. It's like His riches and our deposit slip. And it's just all deposited into our account. And in a moment, we go from rags to riches. And we now have the riches of His righteousness deposited in our account. It hasn't just brought us back up to to zero. That's all forgiveness of sin. This goes way beyond forgiveness of sin. This goes way beyond just wiping out the debt. This now adds the the treasures of, of heaven to our account. And we now are accepted before God. We were spiritual paupers. We had nothing to offer God. We had no way to pay off the debt. And yet Christ stepped in and with His righteousness has made us now joint heirs with Him. Then there's the third metaphor that the Bible uses for justification. It is the metaphor of clothing. 
of the merchant who sells clothing. And again, we stand before God. And we are clothed with the rags of our own self-righteousness. They are filthy. They are loathsome. They are foul. They reek to the heights of heaven. They're spiritual lepers. And we stand before God in all of our filth and depravity. And standing next to us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we put our faith and our trust in Christ. And Christ takes His perfect righteousness. And He clothes us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Every inch and every ounce of us. Loathsome on the inside. Clothed on the outside. And as God looks upon us, not only does He wash away all of our sin and our spiritual leprosy, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Not only does He wipe it all away and wash it all away, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that still leaves us naked. All that does is remove the filthy rags. All that does is just wash us clean. But this just brings us back to point zero. And zeros don't go to heaven. God takes the clothing, the royal garments of the righteousness of Christ, and He clothes us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. And as we are now presented before God, all He can see is the perfect righteousness of Christ. Our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. You can measure the north pole from the south pole. You can't measure the east from the west. It's immeasurable. He has taken all of our sins and place them behind His back. He remembers them no more. He's taken all of our sins and buried them in the sea of of His forgetfulness, never to be seen again in the depths of the sea. And He has clothed us with the perfect righteousness of Christ so that now when God looks upon us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And we are received and we are welcomed And we are accepted in His sight. Legal. Financial. Clothing. All three of those communicate the same truth. But from a different angle. Now what about this act of justification by God? I want to give you some words here. This is like a a footnote, but it's very important. I want to give you ten words. 
to help us understand this righteousness of God that has been declared now to be our possession. Number one, it's divine. It's a divine declaration. God and God alone can declare the sinner to be righteous. In Romans 8 and verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what the devil says. It doesn't matter what you may say about yourself. You're not the judge. It's not your courtroom. There's only one supreme court of heaven and earth, and there's only one behind that judgment bar, and it is God, and His gavel has come down, and that's all that matters. God is the one who is justified. Second, the word forensic. It, it, this imputing of the righteousness of God is a, it's a legal declaration in the courtroom of heaven. And that is exactly what, what that verse that I just read tells us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The courtroom scene. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Third, the word immediate. This takes place in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. And this takes place instantly. This takes place immediately. Uh, you can come to church condemned, sit in a pew, hear the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, and be instantly, immediately justified before the service is even over. Fourth is the word complete. It, it, it is a full, complete justification. Everyone is fully justified under the law of God. No one here today is more justified than anyone else. We're all at different places in sanctification, and some are more practically, progressively sanctified than, than others here today. But for justification, we all, the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all stand equally justified before God. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number five is the word present, meaning it happens presently in this lifetime. There, there's some bad teaching out there that says on the last day, after God examines the books, there will be a determination to see if you're justified or not. That is heretical. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, that split second, it is as if there is a lightning bolt out of heaven that comes striking down, and you are instantly, suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, you are immediately justified. You're not waiting to be justified on the last day. If you're not justified now, you'll never be justified on the last day. It's now or never. That's why he says in Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore now 
being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 5 verse 1. Number 6, the word reversal. Justification is a total reversal of your status and your standing before God. Before justification, you, you were condemned. The rope was around your neck. The sentence had already been issued. You were in a death march to your grave. You were under the curse of the law. You were under the wrath of God. You were an enemy of God. You were alienated from God. And the moment you believed, it was a total reversal of your standing and your status before God. And you went from being condemned to no condemnation. It's extraordinary. Seventh, undeserved. It is all by grace. None of us deserve to be justified. We're all lawbreakers. We have all shattered the law of God. We have all been weighed in the balances. But God gives justification. He declares justification to those who are the least deserving. Even Paul, who was the chief of sinners. It magnifies the, the grace and the glory and the greatness of God to reach to the bottom of the barrel and to declare righteous those who are the furthest away from Him. Eight, the word free. It's all apart from works. We've already discussed this. There's nothing you can do except believe upon His Son, Jesus Christ. Ninth, it's vicarious. It is based upon the righteousness of another. Oh, you are saved by works. Just not your works. By the works of another who lived in your place, who died in your place, who lived a sinless and perfect life, who, who died a sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, substitutionary death upon the cross, and His finished works are what is given to you. And then tenth is the word, and I love this word, irrevocable. Irrevocable. Never to be reversed. Never to be rescinded. Ne ne never to be taken off the books and put back into our former status. Once justified, always justified. There, there will never be a reversal of justification by faith. And so, Paul, he chooses to, to build his case for the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ on the anchor point, on the linchpin of justification by faith. I believe in all of these other doctrines. I, I'm an eight-point Calvinist, okay? <laughs> I mean, five are not enough for me, okay? I, I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. But there are Calvinists in hell. 
And there are minions in heaven. But there's no one in heaven who's not been justified by faith. And everyone in hell is there because of condemnation and wrath that has justly fallen upon them. Well, the last thing I want you to see, and I need, I need to wrap this up, is in the middle of verse 24, and I just need to cover this very quickly. Number five, this righteousness that is given to us. Number five, it is achieved by Christ. It, it is achieved by Christ. This righteousness that is imputed to you, this righteousness that is deposited into your account, this righteousness with which God clothes you is not an abstract righteousness. It is a righteousness that was actually achieved and accomplished and secured in real time, in real redemptive history, when Jesus Christ humbled Himself and came into this world and lived among us a sinless and perfect life. Galatians 4 verse 4 says that He was born of a woman under the law, under the, the demands of the very law He Himself issued. And by living under the law, He kept the law perfectly at every point, the law that you have broken, I have broken, times so many we couldn't even begin to count how many times we have broken the law of God and only just one sin would condemn us to hell forever. Just one sin. Adam's sin just one time and the whole human race was condemned. That's how holy God is and that's how much He loathes sin and cannot coexist with sin. Habakkuk 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure than to behold iniquity. So where did this righteousness come from? It is the righteousness that Jesus Christ achieved on our behalf in His sinless life and His substitutionary death upon the cross. And that is what Paul will spell out. And I have just time to, to, to read this and make a few passing comments. But in the middle of, of verse 24, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, let me pick it up. Yeah, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Understand this. It's all in Christ Jesus. There's not a drop of righteousness outside of Christ for you to have. There's not a drop of redemption for you to have outside of Christ. It's all in Christ. And if you have Christ by faith, you have His righteousness and you have the redemption 
that he accomplished on the cross to pay the price for the penalty of your sin and to secure your release from the slave market of sin and Satan. But it's all in Christ Jesus. Every other religion in the world has no righteousness from God. Every cult has no righteousness from God in Christ. Every false gospel has no righteousness whatsoever to give to the sinner. There there is only one mediator between God at the judgment bar and the sinner in his guilt and sin, and that one mediator is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can act on our behalf and represent us before God and have the charges reversed on our behalf. So he says, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. (laughs) It was a spectacle before the whole world. Thousands and thousands were pouring into Jerusalem. And he was crucified on Calvary. Right there next to the main artery going into town. Before the thousands who were coming for the religious holiday. God put His Son on that cross and displayed Him publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Propitiation means that God, the the wrath and the anger and the fury and the vengeance of God towards sinners has been fully satisfied in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. That when Christ died upon the cross... He he placated the wrath of God. There is now, therefore, no wrath of God to fall upon you. Christ took it all to Himself. The physical death that Christ died was nothing compared to the torment of His soul upon the cross as He bore our sins and came under the heavy hand of the crushing judgment of God upon His own Son. Christ suffered in our place. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. (laughs) It was a public presentation of the righteousness that was being secured and accomplished for us. And it's recorded not just in Matthew, but in Mark and in Luke and in John. You can't miss it. It's the golden thread, the, the, the red thread of redemption that runs all through the entire Bible. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. What that means is those who looked ahead to the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, when they put their faith, when they put their faith in Christ, remember Abraham, Jesus said, looked forward to His day and was glad when He saw it. That God passed over their sins in the Old Testament based upon their faith in the coming Messiah, the suffering servant of Jehovah. For the demonstration, verse 26, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. To be just means that God punishes sin. Now just listen to this. Every sin in the history of the world will be punished in full. Not one half of one sin will go unpunished by 
holy God because He is just. Every sin will be punished either in hell in tormented, damned sinners or it will be punished in Christ upon the cross. But no sin will be swept under the carpet. God will not look the other way because of any sin. Either punished in hell or punished in Christ. But every sin will be punished. God is just. And the justifier. And there is the good news of the gospel. Not only does God punish sin, but God also pardons sin. And those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone have their sins forgiven, in full, pardoned, in full, our certificate of debt, which listed every crime of cosmic treason that we have ever committed against God, has been nailed to the cross, and the just punishment for every one of those sins, Hebrews 2, 2 says, every sin shall receive a just punishment, it was nailed to the cross. And when Jesus died, He canceled out your certificate of debt. Just tore it up. And there are no more charges. Ever. Ever. To be brought against you or me who have believed in Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of the ages. How God could be both just and punish every sin and be the justifier. And it is found in the gospel. And it is found in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Sola fide. So have you ever seen yourself standing before the judgment bar of God? Can you imagine what it would be like to have the books opened? Your childhood, your teenage years, your college years, your single years, your married life, the whole account, your business life, and there is the record, and there it stands. You have no hope in yourself to escape the judgment, except God has sent His Son into this world, born of a woman under the law, went to the cross, lifted up to die in the place of sinners, bore our sins in His body upon the tree. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. And there He secured the righteousness that you have to have. And in that last day of judgment, the scales will be brought out. 
And the holiness of God, the glory of God will be put on one side. And if it's only your life on the other side, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. But if you have believed in Christ, His righteousness is placed on that scale. And it's in perfect conformity to the holiness of God. And the smile of God will be upon you. And you will be admitted into His presence forever and ever and ever. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let us pray. Father in heaven, eye has not seen nor ear heard, never has it entered into the heart of man. The profundity and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of this saving message and its power to save and its power to justify. Lord, we need the righteousness that only you can give. And Lord, I pray that everyone here today has put their faith in Christ and have received this righteousness. And for any who has, who have yet not come to Christ, may they flee to Christ this very moment before it is too late. Open their eyes that they may see the beauty of Christ and his gift of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.